Welcome to the Gaming and Chill podcast. Today we have a super special guest, Dr. Anthony M. Bean, author of Psychology of Zelda. Today's episode is sponsored by Humble Bundle. Thanks, guys. Our partner for this week's podcast is Humble Bundle. Humble Bundle is an online digital store that sells some of the most popular games from the most popular game developers. But that's not all. They also offer bundle deals that change weekly and monthly that allow you to pay a designated amount for a collection of games or ebooks that can often save you hundreds of dollars. Humble Bundle then donates portions of its proceeds to a featured charity. In addition to this awesome business model, they have also partnered with us so we get a small portion of any purchase or donation through their website. All you need to do is go to our website, scroll to the bottom of the page, and click the Humble Bundle Partner logo and shop for any games of your heart's desire. Thanks, Humble Bundle. Back to you guys. So how are you doing today, sir? Pretty good, pretty good. How about yourself? You know, I can't really complain. Uh, having read the book, uh, actually I finished it yesterday night. You know what? It is an amazing book that you wrote. Um, first and foremost, I, I want to say it's really good to find somebody who, who probably overthinks Zelda uh, just as much, if not more, than I do on occasion. Um, <laughs> see, I want to ask a couple icebreaker questions before we go into the, um, book questions. Uh, cause I think the, they'll, they'll inform some things. So assuming you, since you wrote an entire book about Zelda and the psychology of Zelda, do you have a favorite Zelda game? Oh, absolutely. And it's the one I constantly got in trouble with when I was younger and constantly being grounded because it was just still to this day, I think one of the most mesmerizing first uh, open world ones, which is Ocarina of Time for me. Okay. I, uh, I'm going to go with Link to the Past, followed shortly by Seasons. Mm, that played both of those. Those are both really, really good. Yes, they are. Um, so have you ever had the opportunity to play any of the randomizers for either Ocarina of Time or Link to the Past? I have uh, not. I think you're talking about some of the homebrew stuff. Yeah. Um, so they basically made patches for some of the uh, emulated versions. Mm -hmm. And they completely randomized the entire world. So you can open up the first chest in Link's house in Link the Past, obviously. And you may find the hookshot. <laughs> it's, it's something to behold and to watch on YouTube and sit there and go, Oh my gosh, somebody had to code this and program this, and it makes you love the game even more. Uh, yeah, because it makes that, you take it in such a different route. That would be super hard to do. If we, I'm just thinking of like the order of the treasure chests and the way that they're set up. To think that you would get that that early, but then you wouldn't have the ability to, to get into other areas or deal with certain things early on. Yeah, it, it really is a it really is a sight to behold, and like once you start dabbling in it, you're like, well, maybe I want to try this now. And then you find yeah. yourself at three in the morning going, why am I still playing this? Why can't I get into this castle? Exactly. <laughs> uh, I think actually, I think they have randomizers for almost all the Zelda games now. I want to say that not Breath of the Wild or um, Skyward Sword yet. Give them time. Yeah, give them, um, give them some time. Oh my gosh, those uh, shrines. That would be ridiculous. Ooh, not knowing what you're walking into. Yeah. 
That would be amazing, actually. <laughs> but if you really think about it, I don't know that you can randomize Breath of the Wild other than the shrines, because you only really get the four, uh, the five main powers and then just random weapons. Most of the time, you're just beating up monsters with whatever you got anyway. So Yeah, I was thinking that, like, what if they, instead of giving you, like, the, the little... Uh, things at the end in the shrines uh they would give you like gold or rupees or something stupid and you're like well how do i get these now <laughs> how Ooh. do i level everything up that would be good that would be really really good instead of rupees falling out of grass they're just like a bomb <laughs> <laughs> why is why is the master sword here of all places <laughs> there you go um another big component of the book was music do you have a favorite musical number from any of the games i actually do and it's the one that i walked down my uh, in my wedding to with the aisle with it is uh, zelda's lullaby Ooh. and we yeah we had that playing as i walked down and my mom who watched me and of course grounded me constantly for playing legend of zelda um constantly when i was younger she was like why does this sound familiar and i was like only know mom if you only know <laughs> <laughs> nice um for me it would either be uh the ballad of the windfish or song of healing that would be good too a uh, song of storms is another one of my favorites Ooh, yes um see i walked down or my wife walked down the aisle to a song from doctor who um because we both watched that as uh, watched that dating and everything i was like well Let's walk down to the aisles of that. Um, That's also a good one, though. It really is. Um, are you? I don't know if you're familiar with Doctor Who as much. Very. Uh, okay. It was actually Rose's theme. Okay. So very, very well suited for a church wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, like I agree. Zelda, Zelda's lullaby is like really, it's subdued, but it carries a lot of emotional connotation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I can. I can see that, like on a traditional piano, organ, or did you have like a ocarina version playing so, at the wedding? So we actually had, there is someone on Amazon, and she, um, I, th I think her name is Taylor or something. Um, I'm looking it up right now as we speak. Um, and her name is Taylor Davis, and she did stuff on a violin, which is actually my favorite instrument. And she, I bought the song, and that's what we did. And uh, on our wedding, our wedding video where they gave us, actually, we were able. I was able to convince my wife to do the uh, Gerudo Valley one for um, the the back end of the theme song. Nice, yeah, classic Gerudo Valley. You know, I I would say that a lot of people would say that that's their favorite Gerudo that Valley. It's good. It is. Uh, just, I don't know, just the um, the Ballad of the Windfish. Because I, I played a lot of Link's Awakening as a kid. And just to me, that song just really stuck in my brain. Mm -hmm. uh, especially given the each of the instruments played part of the song, and then you put them all together, and it's just amazing. <laughs> it's just, it, it, that's the, the beautiful part of the, of the music. And the person who helped, uh, who wrote that chapter, because I'm the one who edited it and came up with all of the the kind of the, the themes that we were talking about. And then we had each individual people 
um, help write each of the chapters based on those themes, and I kind of help guide them very heavily to create the the story, the narrative. Um, Dr. Shane Tilton is a music monster, and his his ability to to really hone in on the the tempo. There, I mean, there was things that he wrote that aren't even in there, and you're just like, holy cow! He's literally breaking it down note by note, and just an amazing, amazing writer. Yeah, um, I would love to know what he thinks of are you familiar with the village that you build in breath of the wild like person by person and then you have to buy your house back yeah <laughs> and you're like i was just gone for a hundred years guys come on well i love the fact that you start there and it's just a subdued theme but then as you're adding more people from different tribes it adds an instrument that kind of jives well with their tribe Mm-hmm. And then at the end, you've got this fully fleshed out piece. I that, that you is wouldn't amazing. Get without it, yeah. I Breath of the Wild is about I feel like about seventy five percent music and twenty five percent everything else. Yeah, in uh, wonderfully and importantly placed music at the right times. Exactly. Um, I think the book actually touches on the uh, chameleon brain or the lizard brain. Mm-hmm. Pardon me. I'm talking about how when you face battle, it changes, or if you sneak up on the enemy, it's it's very subdued, and then all of a sudden, now you're in battle. I, I love that aspect. Um, I actually have a question about that later on that I want to address later. Mm-hmm. I'm Absolutely. For it. Um, last of the icebreaker questions, how long did it take you to write the book? So from start to finish, um, I had a 40-page proposal ready to go, and I sent it off to a lot of different people, and um, Ben Bella was the one who grabbed that at first, which was great, and so we started this and and signed our contract in February of 2017, I want to say. Oh, wow. Yeah, so then we got the whole writing and everything started, and we worked very no 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 i'm sorry that was october of 2017 and then book um the for all the first drafts were due into uh, february of 2018 that's where i was getting like uh mixed up and then everything from there was just continuously refining and really bringing everything into into that uh that idea that this is a, itself is a, is a journey that as you read the the book and you read these chapters that it's bringing you along the journey from those those memories, not just from the music one that elicit those memories, but the ability to to read this story, read how the, the psychology influenced us on a lot of level, but then also in your mind that you're replaying all of those battles, all of those difficulties that you've had. And so about a year and a half to, to get it published, but it's been ready since about December of last year. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So it's not been out too long then. No, it just came out this past Tuesday. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize it came out that soon or that uh, that recently. Mm-hmm. Just came out this past Tuesday officially. Um, Barnes Noble and a couple other places had it uh, earlier. I luckily, when I was down at PAX South this year, I had um, advanced copies that I could um, sell to people. And it was it was like a madhouse, man. It was... I seriously thought that I had been dropped in front in like a, a cage full of uh, piranhas. It was insane, but really, really eye-opening to be like, oh my gosh, I should have had a hundred books down here for people. 
Yeah, especially with, I mean, Zelda is such a rabid fan base. And I say that with so much love. That Absolutely. You write a book on it, taking it seriously, and and it's gone like hotcakes. I can only mm-hmm. imagine. It, it was, I had people like trying to just chuck money at me. I was like, please don't throw money because I don't know where it's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, okay, so let's go into the book proper. Uh, a little bit more heavier of topics. Um, I've got some great questions here, I hope. So, in the field of psychology, how hard was it to get people to take the topic of video games seriously and agree that there is a benefit from them? My gosh, this has been a very long time. Um, So, obviously, Mario came out in 95. And the early 90s is when we started seeing a push of like, yeah, you know, video games, are they really good for you? Are they bad? And we started seeing some really early research on it that people were like, oh, my gosh, doom, people are killing each other. Look what's happening to our our children. And they are creating serial killers and all this stuff. And all the rest of us were like, wow, that's that's jumping. That's like jumping off a cliff and you're flying down at like a million miles an hour. And you're like, I'm going to come to this conclusion just like this. Um, and so it's been a long, long battle of of uh, battling the moral panics and people thinking that shooting in a video game is going to make people shoot in real life when there's actually no real um, evidence to prove it. So just to briefly touch on that, because obviously this isn't in, in, in that area, but like uh, all of the the main shooters and everything like that that have happened across the, the United States, uh, they've actually gone and analyzed all of their video gaming habits and they primarily play nonviolent video games. So it's a really interesting uh, review when you kind of show that with evidence and people are like, well, no, 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 this can't be correct. I'm like, it's, this is what's happened. All of this is, is freely available information out there. You can, anyone can go and just Google around and find it and just read it. So it's really entertaining to, to see people have to grasp with that. But it's always a longstanding battle all through undergrad master's program phd even my teachers at the doctoral levels don't didn't really see a benefit of video games and everything kind of going along those lines and they just saw it as a waste of time and thinking that they are just causing a lot more harm such as people not being motivated and not having the potential to do out there to go out there and become helpful people of society uh, and so I was like, yeah, I disagree. Um, and so I'm always good for a knife fight um, in, in some cases. And so when this came up, it's always been a push of, of mine. And uh, as soon as I knew I wanted to be a clinical psychologist, I knew where my, my niche was going to be. And so I uh, focused very heavily on what do video games kind of impart upon us, the storyline, the narrative, the stages that you have to go through in every game. How are they similar? How are they different? What's uh, actually happening in this game, but how is it similar to this completely other different genre game out there, such as how is Minecraft the same as Halo on some levels, but yet they're different. And and that's kind of where I developed an archetypal um, system of working therapeutically with video gamers. And so, so basically what, what that kind of looks like is, um, video games are broken up into, uh, seven different areas of archetypes, depending on their, their styles of play. 
And based on how video gamers play, they fall into certain categories of how do they manage their time, how do they choose their character, and how do they choose their developmental abilities going through the the game as, as well. Wow. So, yeah, no, it's it's pretty pretty intense. And like I I run a nonprofit down here in Texas called uh, the Telos Project, and uh, and we are constantly. Um, having people come in and be, come in with us to to work with their gamer kids because they're like we don't know how to talk with them we don't know what to do and once we give the the parents the language the ability to think about their their kids differently and what the games can actually impart and we talk with the kids about this we actually see all of the gaming like the serious gaming habits go down and all of the the very productive area stuff going up. And so it's a big change. And once the parents become a lot more accepting and rather than stop doing this, you can't play these games anymore. It's ruining your life. There's a whole different switch to how everything is seen and how it, everything is imparted. And it just it works. And that's kind of what all 11 of us clinicians use down there to really good benefit. Wow. Um, so a couple points on there. So what I'm understanding from what you said is maybe they shouldn't be looking at Halo, Grand Theft Auto, but maybe they should be worried about Harvest Moon and Animal Crossing. I, I was um, thinking of Dance Dance Revolution ooh. myself. But. Yeah, I can. Well, I'm a huge rhythm game fan, so I mean. I am too. I ran a Dance Dance Revolution club in undergrad and got the college to pay for all the equipment. It was great. That's amazing. <laughs> um, two, I wanted to ask, um, you talk about video games of all nature. Um, personally? Are you a Fortnite person or no? I am not a Fortnite person. I understand the draw of it and why it's fun. But even uh, most of my clients who were really big Fortnite people in the beginning have started to drop out because they the game just becomes super repetitive. And that's just kind of how those games go. And it was like with Minecraft in 2016. And now we're just seeing Fortnite. And we'll probably see Apex at the end of this year, I would imagine. And then it'll switch on to something else. Okay, we can continue the interview then. Um, <laughs> there's there's the long time running joke that I will find any chance to take a take a jab at Fortnite, um, but that that's actually really interesting to hear about a nonprofit organization that um, focuses on psychology in children and families with video games, because for so long, I mean, how many parents are like, are you catching them Pokemans? And it's like mm, <laughs> you're 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 out of touch. You're you're not speaking the same language as your children. And I think it, and I think you could agree that it's important to be able to get on your children's level and talk to them about what they're interested in and understand why they're interested in it mm -hmm. rather that, than it's those pocket monsters, man, the black magic and the devil, right? Don't um, let your kids play D and D. It's the worst thing ever. Uh Oh, uh, no, no, I'm a huge, I'm a huge D and D fan. Uh, we were, I'm actually really good friends with uh, two D and D, like or multiple D and D people, and they they just do amazing stuff with it. No, I, I I actually am getting ready to start a new campaign. Actually, on Monday. Um, but I say that because I actually went to a Bible undergrad, and playing D and D did not do me any favors. <laughs> uh, did you did you just yell in the middle of class? Lightning bolt! Lightning bolt! No. <laughs> uh, no. I tried, to, your, I tried to do an 20. entire uh, I tried to do an entire speech in speech class on why D and D was good. Yeah, I didn't pass that class. <laughs> I don't want to say it was because of that, but I don't think that helped. 
Oh yeah, no, have, absolutely. <laughs> it was like, it was like, what are you doing in this room with you know these books? And it's like, would it be easier if I just told you worshiping the devil, or should I go into what D and D is? Because or, or, if I or tell it, you, you're probably yeah. still gonna think I'm worshiping the devil. Yeah, absolutely. That's just kind of how how it goes, and I, and I think that's, I mean, that's still a moral panic from the 1980s, and so it's been dropped off quite significantly like i'm actually looking at three of my dice sets right here on my desk right now um an orange a red and a purple one for the D group social skills groups we're going to do with um at the nonprofit stuff because we bought a very special um very special table to to do this from um carolina game tables where it has the middle the, the top comes off and then the middle is like an, a sunken felt and so we can even do a a whole campaign based on that and just when we have to end the end the therapeutic session we just put the cover back on and it just stays intact oh my gosh that is a beautiful sounding table it's it's amazing i can tell you um okay let's go on to the next question yeah. Um, we only finished question one so far. I know that's the that's the <laughs> glory of the. I love the about these interviews is like sometimes they kind of go off on little tangents, but then we get back and then we move on. Um. So number two is in chapter one, the trope of the silent ta- ta- silent antagonist is brought up. Do you think that uh, Shigeru Miyamoto realized the impact it would have long term? It's or- a was Great it a coding question? question? Uh, was it a coding thing? And it's like, yes, yes, the silent protagonist. Yes. So I don't think it was a coding issue because if they had wanted to make it a coding issue, then no one would have talked. Um, I think that in on his one of his interviews, um, I think it was in 2016, he he actually said that they, it was a purposeful um, idea on it to kind of like play around with the, the idea that if you have someone silent, how hard will someone project upon the character? And they actually discovered in uh, number two or th- yeah, I think it was two that uh, people actually believed that they were playing Link um, a lot more than they were uh, in other games like with Mario, who who may not have had that um, that same silent protagonist um, idea going through his uh, games a little bit more. Hmm. Okay. Um, question three kind of almost uh, bounces off that one, um, which is why I worded it that way. So do you think that some games use the trope of the silent protagonist without realizing the importance, or do you think they do it intentionally? Thinking of games such as Chrono Trigger, Breath of Fire, a lot of RPG games, um, and until very, I want to say very recently, but it's probably been a couple years now, even Halo. Master Chief was a silent protagonist for a long time. Do you think that they do it purposely, or are they just following that trope because it worked for that? I think that there is uh, definitely some purposeful intent behind it. I think the 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 idea of the trope is going to be everlasting, that if we keep something silent, and let's say you're going through a dungeon, and you see a boss, and the boss starts talking to you, you might actually find yourself start talking back to the boss, being like, oh, yeah, you're going to talk to me like that, big man? And you will just watch what's going to happen when I take out my sword and stab you in your face. Um, stuff like that is, and you, you actually kind of find yourself saying more of those types of things than you would if the character uh, does it for you. 
Um, and I, it's kind of one of the other reasons I think like World of Warcraft doesn't really have your character speak as well to, to really have that immersive experience um, for you to go forward with it. So it really feels like your uh, your character is a really big part of you. Hmm. I like that. Because uh, I mean, I listed several RPG games and they're probably some of my favorite games of all time. Mm hmm. Um, and I always wondered, like, do you? I always wondered if they did that purposely, or was it just like, well, it worked for this game, so let's try it for this game, and it just continues that cycle. Um, I mean, I mean, if you think about it, the the games that use that a lot more are the the ones that are much longer games, and the reason that they're longer is they got to keep you involved a little bit more. And so to have a character that may not be speaking may keep you and enticing you a little bit more to be, to go further to keep playing the game because. I'll be honest with you, like when we were younger, I, I was, you know, any game would come out. I'd be like, oh, this is great. Let's play this game. Let's do that. Now I'm much more pickier and choose, uh, choosier about what I play and why I play it. So like say I'm, I don't really play any of those action uh, games too, too much. Action adventure usually has my, my genres, attention, exploration games definitely have it. Um, and just kind of like Stardew Valley. So, you know, clearly I'm going to be a, a serial killer at some point. <laughs> I, I'm an Animal Crossing person, so I can, I can, I can agree there. <laughs> um, I, I think the wait for Animal Crossing is probably what's going to create create, uh, create serial killers, not the actual <laughs> game. Um, I, 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 it's interesting, the thought of silent protagonists and how it's ad adapted. Um, so moving from there, talking more on Link... Um, we all know that many slash all heroes have to go through Joseph Campbell and Christopher Vogler's hero's journey, right? Mm -hmm. Do you believe that there's also a villain's journey? Oh, absolutely. And uh, I think Campbell and Vogler would actually say that the villain is just the other side, other coin, other side of the coin for the, the hero is one cannot exist without others. I mean, do you watch anime at all by chance? Always. Uh, Cowboy Bebop? I've not seen that one. Yeah, oh, it's on my, my giant gosh. list of things if, to watch. Like, if I could go through this podcast right now and strangle you, and I, I would be like, you need to watch this this one because it is the perfect ideology of the the heroic uh, journey and the villain's journey that you find out about in there. And it's just, oh my god, it's just it's just beautifully crafted. I think at the end of to just really percolate in your mind. So yeah, the hero's journey is one cannot exist without the other. And I would probably say that the the villain is uh, someone who thinks that they might be a hero, and that if they take the their actions that they they want to do, then they're going to end suffering on some some. Uh, some area. So like Freud would call it the, uh, the, the death drive in a sense is let me end all this suffering. But in order for me to end the suffering, I have to kill everybody. But if everybody's dead, then there's no suffering. Right. So this is good. Uh, as you so, can see that that's kind of where it goes. So the thing like Sephiroth of final fantasy, I was thinking uh, light Yagami from death note. Yep. Uh, when you said if you end the suffering by killing everybody, it's it. I was like, that's light from death note. Mm -hmm. Um, so in a sense, you think that in Zelda, Ganon is on that villain's journey because he want he he wants to rule. All the end of all things, he just wants to rule. And I think many of them started like 
he just wants to create a better environment for his people, the Gerudo, and just is like, well, the best way to do that is, well, if I was in charge. And it kind of ends up, uh, in one of the chapters, you talk about the imbalance. Or mm-hmm. that one of the uh, writers talks about the imbalance of power, wisdom, and courage. And he's just like, well, let's just take over everything, and then we'll all have a place to be. Um, so he basically goes too far on one end. He goes yeah. too far. It, and, and power can be corruption um, is, is kind of the, the idea behind it. But you need to have the wisdom and the courage to handle the power. And that's why they, they form kind of more of that base uh, because they're there to, to, to help uh, supply it with uh, the, the other areas that one needs in order to counteract the power. Um, that's why we see, let's say, people in our world who will go and use their power for nefarious means um, all throughout history and things along those lines. Um, but when we really focus in on their power, we can see that they become corrupted by it and they're not listening to the wisdom, their advisors, and they don't have the courage to to admit that they, maybe that they're wrong on some level. And that that overwhelms them. And then once they go down this path, it's really hard to come back from it. Yeah, it's uh, it's like with something my uh, my dad said a lot, very, very long time ago of absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I can uh, wholeheartedly. And we've, we've talked about this. Actually, we've said this on the podcast of uh, basically you said not knowing how to turn back around from not listening to advisors and things like that. We've joked around of how many cults have began as a joke. And then it was like, oh, wait, they're serious. I just started this out as a bar bet. Mm-hmm. Okay, how do we how do we turn this ship around? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, there's there's definitely the the big idea be behind the, the corruption of, of power. And I think that's another reason why the, the Legend of Zelda is such a an important series, because it, it actually imparts upon the 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 person like power is okay however it's it's also really really uh damning on other levels and it can really uh affect not just you um but it can affect the world around you if you don't pay attention to it and if you don't work with it uh appropriately with that wisdom and have the courage to take it on and think about the the wisdom i love it i that's that's a really deep um it's a really deep question i think um so talking about wisdom and things like that so let's speak more towards link's shadow um do you think that the memories fulfill that role of link's shadow in breath of the wild as link is forced to view his past and deal with the full weight of his past failure and the weight of all the friends he lost and is that imparted onto the player then I think so. Um, I think that they do a pretty good job of it. I would personally, I'm a big fan of the actual visualization of fighting your own shadow. I think that that uh, gives a little bit more oomph to the to the idea. But I think that um, his journey in Breath of the Wild is uh, like a mix of that Majora's Mask in being able to have to deal with the grief of you failed at this. Um, the first time round, and you almost died because of it. And the only reason you're here is because someone had the wisdom to to put seal you away to heal because your wounds were so incredibly uh, destructive on you. But as a as with almost all the games, you lost your memory yeah. in the process. So let's let's 
give you the memories back in in certain forms, in certain abilities to uh, to make sure that you don't get overwhelmed. And that kind of goes back into that post-traumatic growth uh, chapter that we wrote in there is that if someone is very – the reason people get PTSD is because they become very, very overwhelmed in, in lots of different areas of their life. And that life, and usually when it's they feel threatened and they can't overcome it, and it's because it's the amygdala creates an imbalance in the brain chemistry, and all sorts of fun stuff that we could go on a very long tangent uh, explaining all that. But I, don't, I think it will get boring for some of the <laughs> listeners. Um, but uh, basically, kind of a, when someone has PTSD, they have a, a massive aversion to whatever caused the PTSD. But if we work with it in small doses, such as getting the memories back one by one, processing them, thinking about them, how did, how has it impacted us? And then rewriting the narrative into a more, um, how did it make you stronger idea that creating that, that growth from this, this trauma, we actually see a lot more, um, positivity through that and the person to have the lessening of that that trauma really impacting them okay so it's it's if i'm understanding it's basically quantifying all the past injury and facing it not hiding away from it um i think that's very much like shadow link in ocarina of time in the water temple of you and I, I believe it was said in the book um, that you have the opportunity to face Shadow Link, face your shadow, or you can walk away and mm -hmm. never progress. Right. And only through facing the inner darkness, the inner hurt, the inner loss and failure, you're able to move forward. Um, and I'm probably borrowing it from another part of the book, but go through the ritual of purification of the temple. Um, because I was watching a, in preparation for this, I was watching a video talking about how Ocarina of, uh, Ocarina of Time is a master of uh, subtext. Yes. And how, based upon the Shinto religion, they purify the temples. Mm -hmm. And reading through this, I was absolutely able to see, like, each of the temples you're purifying of a darkness, um, be it Shadow Ganon in the Forest Temple, or the shadows of the Lost Goron and the uh, Temple of Fire and things like that. Mm -hmm. But and I believe it was in the book where you you actively talked about it's the symbol of water purification, of if you're able to face Shadow Link and not destroy Shadow Link but subdue shadow link because your shadow will always be with you they are able to go through this act of purification and once again restore balance and peace what is that a, I was like, is that too reaching or am i am i about not on the target there no no you're you're totally on the target so what you're kind of talking a little bit about is uh, the louis louise grand's chapter which she is just an amazing writer um also um and i actually um have it right here because I have the book open in front of me because that's half the fun of this is and she says only after Link confronts Dark Link and by proxy the player symbolically confronts their own personal shadow can he become his truest integrated self that Dark Link is a point of particular resonance with the players despite being so little being known of his origins speaks to the psychological importance of the personal shadow for Link and gamers alike 
And the, the reason that is there is because you, you nailed it, I think, very, very well, is you cannot move forward without confronting that shadow. But another really important part in, in, in Ocarina of Time is in when you confront your shadow, he'll just stare at you until you are the one to make the first move. That right there, I think, is Nintendo's best, best move on that one. Not an enemy that's going to come and, and search out and destroy you because the shadow, our own personal shadow, won't come out and, and destroy you. It'll just exist in there. But until you start the battle with it, in your ability to to really hone in on how to to deal with it, to engage in that that discourse, that battle, that internal conflict, you're never going to get past it. Whereas the the symbol uh, the symbolicness of the the temples is he has to reawaken his own like spiritual wisdom. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to handle that that wisdom uh, portion to help defeat uh, Ganon. I like it. It's it's a when you stop and think about it, Zelda has a lot of things for you to digest. It's not yes. just a sit down, play it for you know eight nine hours, and you're done. I mean, it could absolutely. be absolutely. You probably shouldn't play it that way your first time. Um. So I want to move kind of shift tracks on you faced your shadows and there may be grief involved. So do, when it was created. Do you think that Majora's Mask had the Kubler-Ross grief uh, method in mind? Or do you think it was kind of just happenstance? Or do you think somebody in the writing team was like, this is where we're going to go with this? It is a really good question, and Nintendo has been asked that on multiple occasions on live television and in interviews, and they refuse to answer. Um, which to me says that I think that they, there was an intentional um, idea behind it and that each of the areas, uh, spe uh, specifically with Clocktown um, and being in the center, of you have to go through them. Um, now, obviously, in the, the game itself, you can try to not go through them in, in order. You're going to have a really tough time um, with that. But there, there's, it speaks to the idea of the method that uh, when you're going through the stages of grief, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, um, there's another one, depression, and then acceptance you you really have you can go through them in any stages and sometimes you have to go through them multiple times and i think that they did a good job with sometimes you have to go through snowhead a couple times to get the the really powerful sword or you have to go through all of the different areas to to really hone in on getting all the masks so you can get uh, the oni mask which makes the final boss way 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 easier uh, <laughs> on lots True. of levels and uh really hones in on the the importance i think that they really imparted upon that and uh, hidden behind the, the loss of navi um but i mean you know with nintendo they, they like to do things in dreams and and feelings of um being something more than who you are so like if you think about the, the beginning stage at the beginning of the game of majora's mask is in the in the forest and he falls off and gets knocked unconscious. So you're like literally playing in his unconscious right now um, in, in making sense of it all. And then, you know, if you go to one of the later games, there's, there's hints that the, that when he went into the forest and he got knocked on the head, he actually died. Um, and he becomes the, the, the skeleton uh, person in being able to, 
uh, guide link on some of the master techniques in Twilight Princess. Yes. Um, yeah, I think I've seen that. I think there was a whole video probably made by Game Theory at some point about Link is actually dead. And, you know, it's all joking inside. But when you stop and think about it, yeah, it, it, you sit there and go, oh, my God, could it be true? Mm hmm. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's. It's interesting how much, as adults, you we sit down and we play this game, and then we're like, oh, when I was a kid, it was just all fun and games, literally. But as an adult, you're sitting there, and you're, you're able to em really embrace the deeper meaning that a lot of these games, whether by happenstance or through an intentional method, they've been given so much meaning. I mean, because if you look at Link's Awakening... You absolutely have the ability. It tells you, hey, this is all a dream. If you do this, we don't know what will happen. You could mm -hmm. disappear too. We just don't know. And you still have to face that of, do you want to face reality or do you want to face this idealized dream? Because if you stay in the dream, May Village has no threats. Mm-hmm. You can live out the rest of your life in a dream knowing that you didn't face reality. And all the, I think all of the monsters, are, all the boss monsters at least, are shown to be very aware that when the windfish wakes up, they all die. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an interesting, I, I think Nintendo on, on levels, they're the masters of, they're the masters of subtext. Yeah, in um, stories. I think that they that they get such a bad rap sometimes. We're like, oh, they're all kid games. And I was like, yeah, but I see you over there in the corner playing um, the Zelda game or that Mario game or this other one that has a crossover on there on the Switch because you like it on that system a little bit more. Like, we, we can see you there. You, you can have what you want on it. But at the same time, you know what? Don't don't knock their, their, their storylines because in all honesty, I mean, I have a harder time finding uh, another producer of games that has the the same effect that Nintendo's uh, storylines do on the people and continues on with it. Like when you even just talked about how you play this as a kid and you think it's a game, but then now these days we're like, wow, did that really impart this on me at that young of an age? And I just wasn't knowing that. And does that mean that all of Nintendo's games have lessons in them that they're unconsciously teaching us as we play them? Does that mean I should have my kids play them so they all get that thing and then 20 years later, they'll be able to have that aha moment and then relate it back to this. I mean, it's, it just keeps on going back on that. And I think that's what makes it. Um, and it, don't get me wrong. I like, I love Bethesda games and stuff like that too, but I still don't think they have anything on Nintendo's writers. No, I'll, for Bethesda, they write implicitly. Mm -hmm. They write like, oh, okay, you're the Dragonborn. There's no subtext here. Whereas nope. Nintendo is like, yeah, we're going to have a whole lot more subtext and... You know, people knock Breath of the Wild and go, there's no story, there's nothing, it's a shallow game, and it's like, yeah, but look at the subtext. Yep. Don't just burn through the game and go, that was it. Nope. Well, I, I think that's that speaks to, like, the a problem, I would say, with most of the games these days, is that, um, like, I can say it because I've become more picky and choosy on the types of games that I want to play, and things along those lines. And I think that's because a lot of the games storylines just don't, they don't do it for me. They're, they're just, it's so apparent what they're trying to do that it just, it's not, it's not there. And like, I don't want to be told that 
you are the dragonborn and you have to go and do this type of stuff. I want to experience what it means to become that hero. Not that I have the knowledge at the beginning of level one, like I am the dragonborn, I am a hero. And then you play through the hero's journey a little bit less and like less, um, less there. And it's just not it's just cause it's smacking you in the face. And it's like, okay, you know, I know I'm going to end up beating this, but it's like, how do you, how do we get there? Right. Link never starts out as the hero, but he becomes mm -hmm. the hero. Yeah. Whereas in Skyrim, it's like, you're God among men. Congratulations. You start this way and you'll end this way. There's no character growth. Let me give you the super awesome power that you can yell at something at level two. And then you tell me that you're not powerful and that you can not just be super, superbly corrupt really quick. Yeah. I mean, I, I think... Bethesda does a really good job about morality of exposing the player's morality as a whole of like, you got all these God powers and you're robbing people. <laughs> <laughs> what about the main storyline? I know I'm going in. Uh, I'm going to get some more dragon bones here. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So I want to move on to a kind of a different gear. So in music, we, we talked about how Zelda is music. Um, I would argue to say that 90% of all Zelda games have the best video game music of all time. How do you feel about people who turn on the game and immediately turn down all the music? And they're like, that's nah, just not important. It doesn't add anything. Do you want to associate with those people? <laughs> <laughs> on a personal level, I think they're crazy. On a psychological, psychologist level... I'm like, you, you just turn, turned off uh, at least a third of the game of experiencing it. Because, I mean, like, look at Halo. They're, they're, they had a full orchestral music put into the game, um, specifically because of the importance of the impact. Look what uh, uh, Zelda's lullaby stuff goes in, keeps on bringing up these, these feelings. To, to me, if, if you're doing that, then you're not getting the, the whole game. You're, you're, not, you're playing through the game. Yes, you're defeating these bosses. Yes, you've conquered that. But how much of that are you going to remember? How much of that is going to be a, a piece of you going forward? Right. It's almost like in shutting off the music, they're shutting off a part of themselves as well. Mm -hmm. um, as, as a, even as a kid, I was like, you know, people worked on that music, right? So turning down and turning off the music is kind of like slapping them in the face and going, you know all that sound design you did? Yeah, I'd really rather not deal with it. <laughs> it's like, okay, I mean... I mean, what do you do in car rides? You do not listen to the radio? You just sit there in silence and listen to the hum of the, uh, you know, the car's engine? <laughs> that would be miserable. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I always find it fascinating. People are like, oh, it's just annoying and repetitive and things like that. And it's like, good music isn't repetitive um, in a sense like as good music as Mario's theme is once you get past like one or two themes I could not hum a single bar of any of the other themes it's mm -hmm. Bowser's theme maybe the title screen and underground and maybe underwater yep that's it whereas Zelda you could go hey you remember that one piece? And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, I do. Do you remember the original Fire Temple soundtrack? Yes, I do. And do you remember the new Fire Temple? Yes, I do. It, it's 
it's more about what's memorable and what makes a good game good. Yeah, and I think the the music chapter touches upon a lot of the uh, important aspects of of what you just spoke with because if you actually go and look at like the original soundtracks of those those areas and then overlay it with the the new soundtracks you can actually see a lot of similarities in some cases very identical notes and that's is there to to really elicit those those emotions and those being like oh i know where i'm at and i hated this temple this yeah. was terrible now i know what i have to deal with I'm like oh crap here we go I think Breath of the Wild did it amazingly when you go up to the Rito village and you hear Dragon Roost Island. Mm-hmm. The, I, I think 90% of my Breath of the Wild playthrough was just stopping and going, I know this piece of music. It's from yeah. this game. It's from this game. And just kind of just soaking it in. And it, it's it's fascinating that there are a lot of games released a lot of games released. But I would say only a small handful are you able to actually recall any of the music from. I mean, I can't... I mean, Assassin's Creed has, what, 10 games? 8 no, games? An, too, uh, many, uh, too many, in my opinion. X number of games, fill in your number. I could not name you a single piece of music in it. Mm-hmm. Even even as good as Skyrim is, I can only think of the main theme. Yep. Whereas, and those are, those games are good if you're into Skyrim and you're into Assassin's Creed. Yeah, I, I buy the, the Elder Scrolls and the Oblivions and oh yeah, and all of them. I always have buy them. But it's one of those weird things of you're not able to recall the music, and I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, I can't even like imagine some of them and i have the music on all the time so it's it's interesting how some music just gets stuck in your head and some doesn't and i think that zelda does it perfectly in that it tr tries not to get it stuck in your head but it does because it, it's not a meme as as it were it's not one of those things where you're you're gonna make a joke about it you're gonna meme with it it's just genuinely good music you know, I don't know. It's it's interesting the um, the music aspect of a game. Um, do you think we'll ever get a game with Linkle being the holder of Triforce Courage? I think that we are moving in a direction which I'm very excited for um honestly i think with this the breath of the wild game that we saw it going in that uh that direction of possibly uh having uh link being a little bit more of, of the feminine or being linkle or possibly maybe zelda being the the main protagonist having to save link because maybe the link has been captured by ganon on some level and you have to use the wisdom in order to get there and then the courage to come up and battle him that was actually my next question of, do you think yeah. we'll have something from Zelda's perspective then? I think that would be amazing. I think it would be, I don't want to say groundbreaking, but it would be groundbreaking. I mean, if we think about like Breath of the Wild's uh, Zelda, this is the first time we've seen her 
in a, a form of a time, uh, one would come, some would say tomboy fashion, where she is a research scientist and her dad's like, you need to be the protector of the realm. And she's like, we need to figure out what's going on. And so I'm going to research this since no one else is, is going to seem to be able to handle this. This is the first time we haven't seen Zelda in a dress. Zelda in uh, a capacity of being helpless, but someone who goes out and runs on her own, and even in one of the memories, goes and says to Link, "I don't need your help." Yeah, and I think that's this is this is the the game. I think that we we is going to create that crossroads, which is I'm super excited that it will lead to something more. So long as it's not Super Princess Peach for the DS. Yes. God, that game was terrible. Or or a baby, a baby Zelda. You know, <laughs> somehow, somehow, some way, Yoshi's Island Baby Peach somehow was much better than Super Princess Peach when that game literally weaponized emotions. It's like, mm-hmm. tell me how you didn't plan to set back, um, how did you not plan to set back feminism? And how, how did this game come across as so insensitive? You did so many right things with other games and... This is what you went with for Peach, huh? Yep, exactly. <laughs> I, I Even I played that game when it first came out. I was like, this game isn't good. You're literally crying and getting angry and gloomy. It's like, please don't make this a thing. I, but I would love, um, I would actually love to see a Zelda game in from Zelda's perspective. Um, it'd be kind of cool if we got it. A, another Oracle game as basically the tri- to finish out the trilogy of Oracle of Secrets but you're using the Triforce of Wisdom oh I would love that I, I love the Oracle games I had such a good time with them amen to that um, that actually wraps up all the questions I had um, do you have any upcoming projects you want to talk about yes or no uh, yeah we actually have a, a- number of upcoming projects um (laughs) where where should we start um one i am actually working on a parenting book for uh video gamers to to really uh parents of video gamers um so they can understand what do these video games impart and why they're important but you know sometimes we all can as as kids play a little too much over some some things and, and not do our schoolwork or not do something else and on on those levels is what do you what do we do in those cases how do we handle those those types of things it's not necessarily an all or nothing scenario it's what kind of boundaries do we put in place how do we build up our our kids self-esteem and being able to to manage these things but also uh, be able to play the games so that's one of the projects another one um, we're working on is um, i'm teaming up with uh, dr rachel court who is a wonderful research psychologist who lives up in canada to do um, some stuff on video gaming and addiction uh, to kind of see whether people are actually meet that criteria of addiction or are they using it more as an emotional basis to to really hone in on and handle anxiety depression trauma stuff along those lines and then another project is we have a clinician's guide to geek therapy coming up, and one of the, uh, that'll probably be out in 2020. And one of the big things that we have is some amazing writers of being able to 
use different areas of geek. So we have video games, Dungeons and Dragons, comic books, uh, comic cons, other fandoms. And how do we use this therapeutically so it's not seen as an outsider um, idea any longer? As how how can you use this to your to your benefit? So like we got some amazing writers like Janina Scarlett, who's the creator of Superhero Therapy. She's writing a chapter in there. Um, I'm writing one on video games and archetypes. Um, again, how do we use that through a narrative lens? And I mean, just some great D&D people up in Seattle are going to be uh, writing another chapter on it. And then the other project that we have going on is um, I'll be at PAX East again this year. And we're going to be talking about the psychology of Final Fantasy. I think it's going to be our next next one we're going to run on to. So it's it's the the start, and if people want to to kind of see that, um, the publisher Ben Bella wants to see how well the Psychology of Zelda book does before they uh, venture into the psychology of Final Fantasy. But I already have crazy amounts of topics um, ready to go on that one, and so that one's actually going to be streamed on the Thursday of um, PAX East, and it's just going to be one heck of a heck of a thing overall. For those who don't know, and maybe including myself, when and where is PAX East? PAX East is in Boston, and it is at the end of March into April 1st, I believe. It's always at the end of March. Hmm. <laughs> that sounds really cool. Um, I actually love Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy VI is one of the best ones ever. Um, you, you will like some of the writers, I can tell you that. <laughs> yes, I look forward to that book. I really do. That um, one's going to be good. Anything else before we uh, before we head out? Well, if any, if anyone wants to ever kind of connect, they can um, always find me on Twitter at uh, Video Game Doc, and if they are interested in the book, it's on Amazon. Um, and I am also the the writer of the Clinician's Guide to Working Therapeutically with Gamers and Video Games for Clinicians from a Non Addiction Standpoint. That uh, I kind of talked about a little bit earlier from the archetypal realm, and that really helped uh, flush out a lot of. A lot of things for a lot of clinicians across the United States, and it's apparently UK and the US are in a battle right now to see who's going to sell the most copies, uh, is what I'm being told, which is super unusual. That is awesome, and all those links will be down below as well. I want to say thank you for uh, joining me on this podcast. It was lovely having you. Well, I appreciate the, the chance. A, uh, getting to geek out on a psychological and a gaming level about such a good game. Oh, it's um, so good. So, once again, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And be sure to go to Amazon, get the book. Absolutely get it. I will 1,000% endorse it. Um, it's a super – it's an easy read, but it's one of those reads that make you go, huh, and stop and think about it. Um, other than that, I think that we're good to go. And thank you so much for joining us on this Gaming and Chill podcast. Uh, you can find all the information on our website as well, gamingandchillpodcast.com. And we do have a Patreon if you want to support the channel as well. So without further ado, thank you again, Dr. Anthony Bean. It was lovely having you, and we'd love to have you again some other time to talk more about psychology and video games. Absolutely, anytime. So until next week, have a good one. Thanks, guys. And thank you to all of our listeners out there, because we really couldn't do it without you. We hope you enjoyed this week's Gaming and Chill podcast. If you'd like to know more about the podcast, follow us on social media, or learn how to support the podcast directly, check us out at www.gamingandchillpodcast.com. Also, be sure to stay up to date with Gaming and Chill by following us on Twitter 
at at gaming underscore in underscore chill. Yes, that is gaming underscore in as in Nancy underscore chill. You can also find links to the articles, games, and videos mentioned in this podcast in the description below. Thanks again for watching, and until next time.